Welcome back and thank you for joining us. Looking back over the westward expansion, the vast migration in our civilization set both the tone and the path for the bulk of our Grand Lodges to establish and take root, ultimately shaping Freemasonry in what we know as the United States today. Tonight, we're going to dive into some interesting and important history of a grand jurisdiction, which not only is a product of that very migrational factor, but also that holds three start dates in their history. That being 1874, and my notes just totally went, sorry, 1874, 1909, and 1892. My apologies. If you haven't guessed it yet, we are indeed talking about the history behind the Freemasonry and Grand Jurisdiction of Oklahoma. So why three start dates? Well, that's interesting. Our special guest this evening is going to be covering all that and more right after this on Historical Light. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. Now, enjoy the show. Thank you, everybody, so much for being with us this evening. First full-length live episode, not just the uh, live chat and toast anymore, but we are going to be doing that at the 9 o'clock hour, so make sure you uh, you have your can and in favor of Bever's wish this evening. Um, well, let's see. I want to I thank everybody for joining in. We'll hop over and see, make sure our comments are rolling seeing brother maddox is with us brother ramirez so thank you guys so much and a whole bunch more of you so definitely hit the comments let us know you're here and uh, let us know what you'll be toasting with later uh, later this evening for introductions i am of course alex powers your host i am past master of the gardner masonic temple out here in gardner kansas and we are very pleased to have with us this evening uh brother t.s acres from the grand jurisdiction of oklahoma my brother, if you don't mind, I'll hand it over to you for more appropriate introductions. First, can, can you hear me? I can hear you great. <laughs> All right, perfect. Um, again, I, uh, I'm T.S. Akers. I'm from Oklahoma. I'm a member of Guildhall Lodge number 553, uh, past master there, and I serve as the curator of Masonic, Masonic collections for the McAllister Scottish Rite Temple. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us this evening, and we're definitely uh, looking forward to hearing about some of the wonderful history uh, down there in Oklahoma. So before we do dive into the uh, meat of our show this evening, uh, we want to offer you guys a chance to join the team as far as helping support the show. Obviously, everything we do here comes with a cost, a monthly overhead. So if you want to join the team and help uh, keep us going, you can do that multiple ways. The easiest way, share, like, subscribe, help us get the word out about the show. If you'd like to go a step farther, you can visit our website, historicallight.com slash support, or just go to the website and up in the menu, yeah, you will find support the mission and uh, you can easily join the team in that uh, in that fashion to help us keep growing and keep bringing you great content. With that, Brother Akers, I will uh, let you dive into the meat here and I'll come up with some juicy questions as we continue. But I, I am dying to hear about Oklahoma Masonry and how it got started. 
Um, well, Freemasonry in Oklahoma, like uh, a lot of other places, spread with, uh, with the advancement of the military. I wrote a paper um, that was published in uh, Phil Leahy's magazine in 2019. It's called, called the, uh, the Legacy of Regimental Lodges. And it outlined the, um, how, how Freemasonry followed the British Army across the empire. Um, in Oklahoma, or what is today Oklahoma, Freemasonry really arrived uh, here in 1824 with the establishment of Fort Gibson um, by Colonel Matthew Arbuckle. Uh, who was himself a Freemason. Now, I'm not saying that Masonic activity started in 1824 or a lodge started in 1824, but there were Freemasons in the Indian Territory in 1824 um, with Colonel Matthew Arbuckle. Um, the first lodge in Indian Territory was established by the Cherokees um, at Tahlequah in the Cherokee Nation, which is the capital of the Cherokee Nation, and, uh, and that was in um, 1848. Um, it was established by the Grand Lodge of Arkansas. That was the chartering body, and uh, uh, that lodge is sort of like a who's who of men of the Cherokee Nation. So um, you had Walter S. Adair, uh, William P. Ross, who would go on to become principal chief, um, and one of my ancestors was an early member of that lodge, uh, the Reverend Thomas Bertolf, who was a, a Methodist missionary um, in the area. Uh, he married uh, a woman by the name of Nancy Tees. Uh, their daughter, Betty Bertolf, married uh, William Frederick McIntosh, who is my third great-grandfather. So that's sort of my uh, family's Masonic history. We're, we're, we're sort of part of the history of Freemasonry in, in Oklahoma, I guess you could say. So, um, But all of those early lodges in the Indian Territory were established by uh, the Grand Lodge of Arkansas before the Civil War, I should say. Um, so, Freemasonry in Oklahoma, craft masonry in Oklahoma, uh, really comes by way of Arkansas. So, uh, a lodge was ultimately established at Fort Gibson in 1850. Uh, the Choctaws established a lodge at Dokesville in 1852. Uh, another Cherokee lodge was uh, at Flint Station. Um, that was established in 1853, and then the Muscogees, um, which is the tribe that I am a citizen of, they established a lodge um, at the Creek Agency in 1855. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So, so those – go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was, I was going to throw in there. So early on in Historical Light, we had the, uh, the opportunity to uh, interview – David Dill, I think his name is. He's the yeah. guy from the Indian Masonic degree team down there. Yes, and I know David. Yeah, yeah. He he's also in with uh, Muscogee blood, and that that's I have Muscogee heritage as well. I've still dropped the ball on getting the citizenship with that, but that's awesome. Um, and what I find so what's interesting about Muscogee Lodge is that there's a Muskogee Lodge that exists today, but it's not the original Muskogee Lodge. Interesting. So, so uh, the 1855 Muskogee Lodge uh, was number 93 um, from the Grand Lodge of Arkansas. The Civil War was a devastating period for the Indian Territory. Um, guerrilla warfare, most of the homes... Um, were destroyed, uh, crops burned, constant raiding. So a lot, the lodges all went defunct during the Civil War. After the Civil War, 
Freemasonry started to come back to life. Well, the Grand Lodge of Arkansas reassigns numbers, or at that time reassigned numbers, when a lodge was stricken from the roll. So Muskogee Lodge was originally uh, number 93, and their lodge number had been given away to another lodge. So after the Civil War, when they, uh, when they came back and, and started functioning again, um, and that was in 1874, um, the Grand Lodge of Arkansas gave Muskogee Lodge a new number. They became number 90, so they got a lower number. They were now meeting in Eufaula, uh, which is a town that still exists today. They'd left the Creek Agency. So they became Muskogee Lodge number 90, originally being 93. Now this is important. So when the, when the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory was established in 1874, um, the three lodges that, that met to, uh, to organize that lodge were, uh, got that in my notes, give me a moment, uh, was Caddo Lodge number 311, which was a post-Civil War lodge, Dokesville Lodge number 279, and Muskogee Lodge number 90. So they having the, the lower number, uh, even uh, of the other two lodges, but of the new number, uh, when the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory was formed, they became Muskogee Lodge number one. Uh, in time, they would change their name to Eufaula Lodge number one, which is where they meet today. Um, and that is actually the lodge that I took the degrees of Freemasonry in. Um, so that's my home lodge. Uh, the Cherokee's Lodge uh, at Tahlequah was uh, number 21, Cherokee Lodge number 21. After the Civil War, when they tried to get a new charter or, or become reinstated, the Grand Lodge of Arkansas refused to allow the Cherokees to form or to reform that lodge. Um, their argument was that their number had been reassigned. So the Grand Lodge of Arkansas refused to give them a new charter. But they gave the Muskogees a new number and a new charter. The, uh, the theory is that because uh, so many Cherokees fought for the Union during the Civil War, the Grand Lodge of Arkansas refused to reinstate their lodge after the war. Um, there's, there's no solid evidence on that, but that's, a, that's the speculation there. Um, so when Cherokee Lodge uh, joined with the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, um, nine other lodges were ahead of them. So in Oklahoma today, uh, it's Cherokee Lodge number 10 at Tahlequah, which was originally formed in 1848. Eufaula Lodge number one was formed in 1855. Uh, so it has a later charter date. So that's that's a point of contention with the with the brethren in Tahlequah and the brethren in Eufaula. Now that takes us up to uh, to 1874, as you know, with the formation of the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. Now you're up in Kansas and uh, Oklahoma of. Oklahoma has a lot of interesting connections with a variety of jurisdictions, uh, but we do have an interesting connection with Kansas. So at Fort Gibson, um, before the Civil War, Fort Gibson had a Masonic Lodge that was chartered in 1850. 
it was a lodge that went defunct during the war and did not return. But the Grand Lodge of Kansas chartered a lodge at Fort Gibson in 1870. And uh, that was Alpha Lodge. Uh, let's see what the number was at the time. Alpha Lodge number 122 of Kansas. So the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory has formed in 1874. Kansas is operating a Masonic Lodge in the Indian Territory jurisdiction. Uh, Indian Territory felt that Alpha Lodge should join should join with them and. Uh, the, the Kansas Masons at, at Fort Gibson were not interested in that. So, Indian Territory is, is in a very bold move in 1876, uh, passed a resolution declaring uh, Alpha Lodge to be clandestine for not joining the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory and demanded that they relinquish their charter to Indian Territory. Uh, the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory had no authority to do this uh, because it was a, it's a Kansas Lodge. What I find particularly interesting about uh, the relationship between Kansas and Indian Territory at the time was uh, Kansas was refusing to, to, to give fraternal recognition to the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. Um, and the reasoning being they, they were arguing that the Indian Territory as one jurisdiction was not, say, one territory or one state because you had five different tribes who were recognized as sovereign entities comprising the Indian Territory. So the argument was there can be no Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. It should be a Grand Lodge of the Muscogee Nation or a Grand Lodge of the Cherokee Nation because those were distinct um, political jurisdictions, you could say. This was ultimately resolved. Well, you're at a stopping point there. We're, we're getting some uh, comments that we're getting a weird echo. And uh, I know you were experiencing an echo in the green room. So I, I hate to do this right in the middle. But um, anyone that is uh, in the chat right now, if you'll let me know, are you guys hearing an echo on my voice as well? Uh, it was just coming through on Brother Aker's voice. Not sure what's causing it, but we will try to fix it. So let me know in the chat. Uh, I was telling Brother Akers in the in the green room, uh, for everyone that is uh, familiar with the, the history of historical light, uh, if there's one thing that we have, it is a, a history of technical difficulties. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we're trying this new, uh, new platform this evening, so uh, it's always bound to be something, right? Okay, so not from me. Looks like just from Brother Akers. Brother Akers... I know it's live. It's live, right? Uh, if we can just get an audio test from you and see if uh, you coming back in helps anything. Testing, testing. Can you hear me? Uh, got poor quality on the audio there. Okay. Are you? Were you using headphones and speakers at the same time? Maybe. Let me see. Uh, let me try one other thing. What's the, I'm still getting the echo on my end. Still getting the echo on your end. Well, yeah. You sound good on my end. 
Maybe if if all you guys just come over to my house, it sounds great over here. Is there, yeah, I still have the echo. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, I apologize to everybody. I have genuinely no idea why that is. Let me trying to figure out what I can do here. Uh, see, Brother Wine says slight echo, but not intolerable. So, what's it? What's like it sound like now? I think I think you sound all right. Okay. Okay. So, I, let let's go ahead and continue, if, guys. I apologize, um, but if if it gets intolerable, just let us know, and we will try to do what we can. It's a live episode. We're just uh, we're trying to get the content out, right? So, sorry about that, Brother Acres. Now. I know we uh, we threw a wrench in your your uh, your presentation there. Um, while we got this opportunity, though, I didn't ask you in the beginning. You, you mentioned some of your your family history. Uh, is that what got you interested in Freemasonry, or what was it that really sealed the deal for you? And it's like I, I've got to do this. So, so I, I didn't really learn a lot about my family history until after I was pretty well involved in Freemasonry. Now my grandfather was a mason um and and because of that i was i was interested in the fraternity but there was a there was another gentleman in my hometown um who i respected and he was friends with my father um and he he's the one that really encouraged me to to join the fraternity in eufaula um, oklahoma has this program called the masonic student of today um and that was uh, an honor i received i think my senior year in high school um so that that kind of piqued my interest and got me started um, in the fraternity in Eufaula. Um, from there, you know, I went to OU and I studied history um, and I sort of got uh, uh, really into um, uh, fraternal history in the state of Oklahoma, which is was where, kind of where I am today. That's fantastic. Well, you know, as a fellow history nerd, I see your stuff on Facebook all the time and you've, you've been one of the key guys that uh, I hang in there with and, and follow your feed. So definitely appreciate all you're doing uh, for Masonic history and preserving what there is down there in Oklahoma. So you're doing fantastic, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. There's, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of people that um, are particularly involved, I guess you could say in Masonic history or, or in one, in one jurisdiction, people, you know, outside of one's own jurisdiction, people might not find, um, you know, the, the history of a different uh, jurisdiction to be all that interesting. Um, and I, what really set me on my path, I guess you could say, um, in 2010, I was elected to the Progressive Grand Line of the Grand Commandery of Oklahoma. And in 2012, I decided um, to start writing the history of Templary in Oklahoma. Um, it was a topic that had not been covered by anyone previously. Um, there had been Masonic histories that were sort of, well, in 1935, uh, our state's probably our most prominent Masonic historian, Charles Krieger, penned what we say is the ultimate volume on the history of Freemasonry in Oklahoma. And I've always said that, and nothing worthwhile happened after 1935. Um, it's, it's the book. Um, but he, you know, his, 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 uh, his particular uh, commitment to the, to Templary in that book was just one chapter. He also wrote just one chapter on Royal Arch Masonry and one chapter on cryptic masonry. Um, 
Krieger himself went on to write a small uh, monograph on the history of cryptic masonry in Oklahoma in the 20s. Or uh, let's see, that the, the, main, the, main, the main volume was 35. He had written the other book in the 20s. There okay. was a history of Royal Arch Masonry uh, that came out um, in the 60s in Oklahoma, but no one had ever um, tackled the subject of uh, the history of Templary in Oklahoma. So I did that. Um, I, had, I really enjoyed diving into the, to the research on that and um, the months that I put into that. Uh, my wife did not particularly enjoy my uh, uh, mental absence uh, for that whole period that I was – I was digging into that. Um, but, uh, so that, that, that was, you know, my first, uh, the first major project I did. And, and since then I've done, I've, uh, I compiled, um, biographical sketches of all of our grand high priests of Royal Arch Masonry and all of our illustrious grand masters of cryptic masonry. So we have photographs and, and biographies of every one of those men. Um, and that took a lot of digging to find some of those photographs and, and, uh, and some of those biographical sketches I had to write myself. Um, a lot of them we were editing, for, I was editing from the first annual proceedings, but not every annual proceedings included a biographical sketch. So, so that's, that's how I got where I am today. That's fantastic, man. Uh, good on you for doing that work. Seriously. I masonry, I, I've said it a hundred times, but we, we seem to be in that generation now that, if we don't preserve this stuff, it's going to disappear before our eyes. I mean, uh, you know, everyone's heard me say a hundred times when I was doing the history of my lodge, some of those books, you could just barely read them still. And pages were just disintegrating as you touch them. And mine are probably in better shape than most. So if we got guys out there in different jurisdictions that will uh, take this on, uh, you will be that stepping stone to allow this research to happen for years to come. Cause otherwise we are that last generation, that last chance. So brothers like you, brother Aker are, are the ones that are paving the way to keep that alive. And, and preservation is, uh, has sort of been, um, what I have, have been pretty passionate about. Um, Oh, several years ago, one of our, uh, older, older buildings, hang on one minute. <laughs> yeah. So Brother Akers is uh, handling that. It, it sounds like we may have dealt with the echo issue. I, I hope so, at least. We got uh, Brother CWH over on the uh, uh, YouTube stream saying it just went to no echo. So I don't know. But, hey, we'll take it, right? That works I, for us. I do apologize that my, my son was getting was going to bed and uh, wanted to say goodbye before before he went off to bed. So his mother That's let him get loose. So. Not a problem. <laughs> um, so what I was saying was uh, several years ago, one of our older um, Masonic halls in the state suffered a fire. And it, it didn't it didn't destroy the building, um, but uh, it was it was arson. And a lot of their paraphernalia had been piled up in one of the lodge rooms and set on fire. And uh, wow. that particular lodge hall had a lot of historic photographs. Um, so I said, you know, we've got to do something about these photographs before the next fire happens or, or, or and we live in Oklahoma for the next tornado or anything happens and these things vanish forever. Um, so what, so what I did was, is, uh, I have friends at the Oklahoma historical society and we, um, uh, I established a partnership with them um, and creating a photo archive. So they, we, uh, I can take to them 
uh, those yard long photographs of, uh, you know, Knights Templar drill teams or something, something like that, um, large format photographs, and they'll, they'll scan them for us. Um, they store them um, in their archives for us. And then they, they send me a, a disc that has those scanned images on it. And we can make those available to anyone um, rather than just hanging on the wall in a lodge hall somewhere. So yeah, I, I totally get the, yeah. Now I, I kind of segued you with, with all that stuff, but I am, I'm dead curious here. We were talking about, we didn't get to the whole thing. Grand Lodge of Kansas was not recognizing the uh, Indian territory Grand Lodge there. Would you mind to jump back into that and kind of recap yeah, that a little bit? Cause that, that really caught my attention. <laughs> definitely. So, so the Grand Lodge of Indian territory, um, in the opinion of uh, John H. Brown, who was the Kansas chairman um, on the Committee on Foreign Relations, is he a, is he a past Grand Master in Kansas by chance? Yes. Okay. Yes, he served as Grand Master and Grand Secretary for some time. Big I name. suspect I suspected so. So John H. Brown was of the opinion that Indian Territory was not one jurisdiction because it comprised five separate entities. The, the Muscogee Nation, uh, the Choctaw Nation, the Cherokee Nation. It comprised these, these nations um, that were their own political jurisdictions. You know, for okay. example, if, if you were sending a letter from Eufaula uh, in the Creek Nation, it would, be it would be listed as originating from Eufaula Creek Nation, not Eufaula Indian Territory, or uh, you know, a letter that originate from Caddo Choctaw Nation, not Caddo Indian Territory. So they, because these five separate nations were within the Indian Territory, it was the opinion of John H. Brown that there could be no Grand Lodge of Indian Territory because of those those distinct political jurisdiction. So it should have been a grand sure. lodge of the Cherokee nation, which, you know, the Cherokees had, uh, two to two or three lodges, but the Muscogees only had one lodge. For example, the Choctaws, I believe had, uh, uh, one or two lodges. Um, but, but the, uh, the, 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 the Masons of, of the Indian territory, they, they viewed, the lodges of the Indian territory as being of the Indian territory, not of those particular um, Indian nations. Um, that, that was the, the argument uh, um, by Kansas against recognizing the Grand Lodge of Indian territory. What the real sticking point was, was the first Grand Master of Indian territory, Granville McPherson had, had passed these resolutions um, that, arrested the charters of uh, Flint Lodge, which was still under the Grand Lodge of Arkansas, and then arrested the charter of Alpha Lodge, which was from Kansas and at Fort Gibson. Um, they had no authority to arrest those charters. And, uh, and the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory also declared those lodges clandestine. It was kind of a... Wow. Yeah. You, you don't really have the authority to, to declare lodges that they might be residing in your jurisdiction, but they hold legitimate charters from other legitimate grand lodges. So they didn't have the authority to declare those lodges clandestine. Now, in Oklahoma Masonry, there's a man by the name of Joseph S. Murrow. Murrow was a Baptist missionary. Um, he arrived in the Indian Territory before the Civil War. Um, he was here to assist a man by the name of H.F. Buckner. Um, the Reverend Buckner would become the first Grand Chaplain of the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. Um, Joseph S. Murrow had gone to Texas during the Civil War, like many did, um, seeking refuge because the Indian Territory was a dangerous place. 
while, while in Texas, Murrow became a Mason, and after the war, he came back to the Indian Territory. So in 1868, um, at a little village called Boggy Depot, um, Murrow and a number of other prominent Choctaw citizens established Oklahoma Lodge, um, number 200 and oh, I want to say 217 at the time. Anyways, they established Oklahoma Lodge. This is the first instance of uh, Oklahoma being used um, in an, any official capacity. Um, you know, we have the state of Oklahoma today. Um, Alan Wright, who was uh, the who would become principal chief of the Choctaw Nation, um, had proposed that the that Oklahoma the name Oklahoma be used to identify the Indian Territory in 1866 in treaty negotiations with the federal government after the Civil War. That was rejected. But they kept Oklahoma around, so they established Oklahoma Lodge in 1868. Um, Murrow was opposed to forming the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. He felt that it was too early and that, they, that uh, the men who were forming the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory did not have the proper authority to do so. Um, you know, they didn't have the proper authority to attempt to arrest somebody else's charter, so they, they seemed to have an issue with that. Um, anyways, the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory is formed. After it's formed, uh, Oklahoma Lodge um, at Boggy Depot decides to join the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. So they surrendered their Arkansas charter and came into the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory as Oklahoma Lodge Number 4. Uh, Murrow became the second Grand Master. Murrow recognized that there was a problem um, with this dispute between Indian Territory and Kansas. So Murrow threw out the resolution that arrested the charters and declared uh, Alpha Lodge uh, clandestine. Uh, this was in an effort to uh, apologize. And the Grand Lodge of Kansas recognized that as an apology and, uh, <laughs> and allowed, because, because the brethren at, at Fort Gibson and Alpha Lodge, they they wrecked, they could they you know they could see the handwriting on the wall they knew that okay we might have been chartered by Kansas this this grand lodge of indian territory is clearly becoming a thing and they wanted to join with the grand lodge of indian territory so after after this resolution was was thrown out by the second grand master the the uh, proverbial apology to Kansas um, alpha lodge ultimately surrendered its its charter to Kansas and joined with the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. Their worshipful master um, was a man named Patrick J. Byrne, and he actually became the third Grand Master of Indian Territory. So not only was there this, this apology between the two grand jurisdictions, um, the, uh, the, the men of, of Fort Gibson um, went on to become prominent uh, Masons in the Indian Territory. So it's uh, it, these early disputes that could have easily have derailed um, a Grand Lodge. And, and when I say the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, the men, that, when they chose to form the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, they made some mistakes, I guess one could say, because they didn't, they didn't ask permission of the Grand Master of Arkansas to do it. These three Arkansas yeah. lodges in Indian Territory just decided, well, we're going to form our own Grand Lodge, whether anybody else wants us to or not. Um, and that's what they did. <laughs> so, the uh, the ongoing issues with uh, with securing recognition had a lot to do with people looked down on um, American Indians, um, yeah. and the Indian Territory was considered to be kind of a wild and reckless place. Um, 
Charles Krieger, the, the historian I mentioned, um, in his 1935 book, he said the following. He said, um, the Indians were misunderstood and unappreciated. True, where Indian Masons were known, they were respected and honored. The Eastern and Southern and Northern Masons had not enjoyed the opportunity of meeting such men. So a Grand Lodge in an Indian country composed largely of savages and heathens and barbarians, those are Krieger's words, was next to unthinkable by the state dignitaries of such Grand Lodges as Maine and Maryland. So all of these other Grand Lodges are looking at the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory and they think, I, I don't know that their masonry is as good as ours. I don't know that they're you know, quite legitimate. Well, they'd been chartered by the Grand Lodge of Arkansas and, and were very much legitimate. Now, Murrow, um, who, like I said, became the second Grand Master and was able to uh, resolve this dispute with Kansas, uh, he, he, uh, he said the following, and I think, it's, I think it speaks volumes. Uh, Murrow said, There is a class of reckless white adventurers in this territory. Some of these perhaps have been masons somewhere, perhaps expelled, at best irregular and unreliable. These are troubling, troubling our lodges no little. So wow. the, the, uh, the prominent masons of the day recognized that there was this, there was this element in the Indian territory it was white men coming into the territory, coming into the territory with a railway uh, because the Missouri, uh, let's see, the, the, the MKT, that's Missouri, Kansas, Texas Railway, was, was coming through the Indian Territory, first railway to do so. And easements were, having, were granted to the railway, and that brought in white settlement into the Indian Territory. And it, you know, it brought in probably a number of, of undesirable elements. And... Uh, Murrow could recognize that and see that uh, white men had long lived in the Indian Territory, whether they were there legally or not. But uh, um, like with any other new territory opening, it, it would bring uh, the wrong, sometimes the wrong kind of people. I guess you could say it's when uh, on the Texas border uh, uh, in a little town. Well, the, the, the town today is called Fort Towson. It's near Hugo, Oklahoma. Fort Towson was established in the 1820s. Um, and it was established to protect uh, the Choctaws from um, the Texans um, and those um, oh, wow. going to settle in Texas. And the commanding officer of Fort Towson in the 1820s wrote in his journal, Texans are the very worst kind of people. And uh, <laughs> it's, that has always stayed with me. So. You, you know, like this this whole conversation it's so interesting to me looking back at these uh these different annual proceedings and stuff uh from from all these different jurisdictions but especially what you're saying how they're figuring out this westward expansion and these lines and and these uh these relationships between all these grand lodges and what gets me is these blunt comments i mean We've seen some stuff in our time uh, where Grand Lodges kind of surprise us and stuff. But I swear back in these days, there was no censoring. They just they said what they felt <laughs> and they put it in writing. It, That's probably raw, my real. main downfall in life myself, because I, I, I'm pretty blunt. And I think I get a lot of it from, you know, from doing my research and things I'm reading. Like, you know, these people, they, did, they didn't put up with anything. Why should I put up with anything? <laughs> so, but. We, we just got a comment uh, in regards to the, the Texas comment there about them. Uh, DG over on YouTube said, hi, take that, Robert Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm Should've sad that here. he's not with us tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Robert and I, we, we had articles published in the same issue of the Philalethes magazine. So that's, uh, we, we have that in common. Um, there you go. Now, now, coming back to John H. Brown, uh, you know, he was opposed to uh, Kansas recognizing the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory. Now, a few short years later, um, the Royal Archmasons of Indian Territory wanted to form their own Grand Chapter. And the General Grand Chapter was like, no, we're not going to let you do that. Um, and, and that didn't go over well. So Joseph Murrow, again... He went to uh, to the triennial of uh, of the General Grand Council. Um, let's see, I want to say that was in 1890. Um, he personally went to the triennial to to plead uh, to allow the Royal Archmasons of Indian Territory to form a grand chapter. And his whole argument to them was, "You don't want us to form a grand chapter because, as constituent chapters, we pay you more money in per capita." than a grand chapter does, and you just want our money, and you don't do anything for us. And, and he, he gave this stirring speech on the, on the floor of, their, of the triennial, and John H. Brown of Kansas was there. And, and he, uh, he rose and recommended that the several chapters of Indian Territory be granted a charter to form, or be granted a, a dispensation to form a grand chapter. So while we had that dispute with John H. Brown and John H. Brown and Joseph S. Murrow must have had a pretty good friendship because uh, John H. Brown came to our aid uh, later, later, uh, well, not, not maybe 10 years later. So. Well, and you know, that's, first of all, I'm seeing in the, uh, the YouTube there, the, the DG is actual uh, Daniel Gardner up out of Montana, the grand secretary. So now I know who's making those comments. Good to have you on brother. Another history nerd uh, tagging in with us, but you know, you mentioned how this, this, this friendship and, and these questionable writings where we look at it today, but it's yet another teaching that we get from the history of masonry. And yeah, it's one of those things like the logo of uh, historical light here. We, we have the skull and the light coming out. It's, it's learning from our past. It's such a valuable lesson of how these brothers can disagree, but still be brothers. And we lose that so readily in today's world. Uh, we, we, we let ourselves get too wrapped up in our emotions. And too often that, that puts you know a barrier between brothers when... If we look back, they, they could have very real emotions with one another, um, but realize at the end of the day, we're still brothers. Now, um, I, I, I want to add, uh, you know, while craft masonry in, in the Indian Territory and what became Oklahoma uh, really came from Arkansas, and Royal Arch Masonry you know, also pretty well came from Arkansas, um, though there were some, some, um, some companions that had taken those degrees in Texas. When we get into um, Templary, um, Templary in Oklahoma really came here from Kansas, um, which okay. is, is, is interesting. Murrow, Joseph Murrow, um, we call him the father of Freemasonry in Oklahoma because he was the charter member of so many different organizations. He had received uh, the Order of the Temple in Parsons, Kansas. Um, Cassius Barnes, who came to Guthrie um, with the opening of the Oklahoma Territory, um, was was here by way of Kansas. Um, all, all of these, these Kansas, Kansans had come, come to the Oklahoma territory, which is where Templary, um, the first commandery was formed in Guthrie. Um, and then Joseph Murrow and Muskogee in the Indian territory, um, having taken the degrees in Kansas. In fact, when they formed the, the commandery of Knights Templar at Muskogee, Oklahoma, 
um, a special train uh, came down from Parsons, Kansas, with a number of Kansans, uh, Kansans Sir Knights, uh, to to constitute that commandery. So, um, Oklahoma has always had this unique relationship with Kansas. So. Very cool. Yeah, I'll admit I, I have not looked into the Templar history here in Kansas. Um, there, there's a ton of it, but I've got so much on my plate. It's it's hard to uh, hard to take in everything. But that's that's awesome hearing those different connections uh, that we have with you guys down there. Very very cool. Now that um, we had, you had mentioned, you know, other dates um, as as far as because Oklahoma. Um, the Grand Lodges, the Grand Lodges that, that comprise what is today Oklahoma, have, have three three origin dates. You've got 1874, um, which is the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, uh, Oklahoma Territory. You know, you've got the run of '89 and and the formation of the Oklahoma Territory. The Grand Lodge of Indian Territory chartered a number of lodges in in the Oklahoma Territory, um, and those lodges um, at, at a time decided that they wanted to form their own, their own Grand Lodge. Um, and unlike the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, which said, we're going to do this on our own, um, whether Arkansas wants us to or not, um, right. when, when lodges had been formed in the Grand Lodge and in Oklahoma Territory, um, the Grand Master at the time was a man named Leo Bennett, um, and Leo Bennett lived in the Muscogee Nation, so he's from my part of the world. Um, in 1892, he presided over a, the convention to form the Grand Lodge of Oklahoma, um, with the Indian Territory giving those lodges in the Oklahoma Territory, you know, their full consent and blessing to form their own Grand Lodge. Um, it's the way the it's the way the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory should have been formed. Um, rather than them calling their own convention and doing it themselves, um, so that was that's 1892 with the formation of uh, uh, the Grand Lodge of Oklahoma Territory, and then statehood came for Oklahoma in 1907, um, and then two years later in 1909, um, Indian Territory and Oklahoma Territory's Grand Lodges merged uh, to form the Grand Lodge of the State of Oklahoma. Um, that was a, you know, that was, that's a pretty big occasion, a big ordeal. Uh, there aren't too many Grand Lodges, I don't believe, that have, have joined. I don't know of too many Grand Lodges, too many states that have had two Grand Lodges existing in them for a, a couple of years and then and merging like that. Um, but what's more, into, what, what I find interesting is, and this comes again back to the York Rite, is that you know, Royal Arch Masonry in Oklahoma today, the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory never, I'm sorry, the Grand Chapter of Indian Territory never ceased to exist. Um, the Grand, when, when Oklahoma Territory was opened, the Grand Chapter of Indian Territory proceeded to charter um, chapters of Royal Arch Masons in Oklahoma Territory, and they never allowed them to form their own Grand Chapter. They maintained Indian Territory, interestingly enough, maintained jurisdiction over Oklahoma Territory as far as Royal Arch Masonry goes. The Commandery, the Knights Templar, um, those, those commanderies were established by the Grand Encampment. Um, so the Grand Encampment established commanderies in Oklahoma Territory and they established commanderies in Indian Territory, and those two entities formed their own Grand Commanderies. So we did have, you know, like we had two Grand Lodges, we had two Grand Commanderies, the Grand Commander of Indian Territory and the Grand Commander of Oklahoma. The, um, 
After statehood in 1907, uh, the Grand Lodges merge in 1909. Apparently, the the higher degree Masons they uh, they seem to have some egos. In in 1907, 1909, um, probably not unusual to today. Um, but uh, so the two Grand Commanderies had no desire to join as one, um, and and I. I I, I don't really know. Um, I, I, have, I was, haven't been able to discern what the issue was there. But um, in, in fact, the Grand Commander of Indian Territory held a special conclave to consider merging with the Grand Commander of Oklahoma at one point. And the, the vote was, was pretty split. There were a lot of surnames really? that did not want to merge with the grand commander of oklahoma so i think that was 1909 and they said okay we're going to belay this and then in 1911 the grand master of the grand encampment said this can't go on you can't have two grand commanderies in one state that's just not the way things are going to be and delivered an delivered an ultimatum um, so it was in 1911 that the Grand Commanderies of Indian Territory and Oklahoma finally merged. And when they merged, the Grand Commander of Oklahoma was always known as the Grand Commander of Oklahoma. They never appended territory to their name. The Grand Commander of Indian Territory was Indian Territory. So when they merged, the Grand Commander of Indian Territory ceased to exist, and they folded in under the Grand Commander of Oklahoma. And I feel like that might have been the issue was is that you know the Indian Territory Sir Knights were, were pretty proud of themselves and their accomplishments. I think they had more commanderies, and they didn't want to just give in to to Oklahoma. But uh, unfortunately, that that was the way things went. So. Uh, I, I, like like I said, it's uh, Templar disputes uh, are nothing new, I suppose. <laughs> so so one question that comes to mind here is, you know, when we look back at uh, a lot of the issues that I, I, you can put your justification, I, I think a lot of it came to racial tension, but with, with the Prince Hall Grand Lodge and the quote unquote mainstream Grand Lodge, you know, a lot of the way that was looked at is, well, we can't recognize them because you can't have more than one jurisdiction within a state. So I can imagine when it went from territory, which kind of gave this gray area allotment to an actual state. Um, did, have you guys found any uh, contention from other jurisdictions like, hey, you guys got to get this figured out or was it still pretty accepted because of the history? Well, by 1907, when the when the state of Oklahoma was formed, those two Grand Lodges, Oklahoma and Indian Territory, had pretty well been recognized throughout the Masonic world by 1907. So it wasn't that was never an issue of oh, there are two Grand Lodges in one state as far as as, as recognition of them went. Okay. As, as we see with you know with with Prince Hall and and the the what is considered mainstream Freemasonry. Um, so no, that, that was never an issue as far as, 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 rec as recognition goes. Um, I, that, that's, a, that's a good question though. That, that would have been an interesting point to bring up in the early days of, you know, arguing Prince Hall Masonry. Like, well, what about what's going on in Oklahoma? You're good with that. <laughs> <laughs> Oklahoma, um, you know, Oklahoma is a southern state. Um, there are people that will probably tell you that, oh, no, it's a Midwestern state or, or whatnot. But you have to look at, you know, Oklahoma and, and the way it was formed, um, 
you've got all of these people coming, you know, coming in from the, from the South into the Indian territory right. and that influence, um, the, the five tribes came here from the South. They were slaveholding tribes. Oklahoma is a distinctly Southern state. Now, when you get out in the you know, Northwestern Oklahoma, you might get this, this, uh, plains, plains vibe. I don't want to say a Kansas vibe. I mean, it is a bunch of Kansans out there, <laughs> but, um, so, the there was there was uh there were definitely Oklahoma has a history of racial issues um as far as being a southern state and and you consider the things that happened here in 1921 in Tulsa with the with the massacre and whatnot so Oklahoma has this pretty dark history as far as uh, racial relations go with African Americans um, and I can see why um, I can see why a, Prince Hall recognition in Oklahoma took as long as it did, uh, as yeah. it has in other in other southern states, um, because of that. Uh, you know, Oklahoma was a Jim Crow state, and 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 all of these other other things that you wouldn't expect to to find here, but you did. And when I say you wouldn't expect to find here, because uh, you know the indigenous peoples here, uh, I'm a mixed blood Muscogee citizen. Um, but the the way the way you know being a mixed blood Indian uh, compared to an African American is viewed was two very different things. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, very very interesting. So let's see here with with the history of of Kansas delving into to offer that up with a. Uh, with Oklahoma kind of, you know, going through all that, how did, how did we see relations with the two carry out past that point? Well, um, I think Kansas and Oklahoma have, have always been pretty congenial. Um, I, Templary in particular, uh, one of the triennials, um, uh, Kansas, uh, the Kansas delegation and the Oklahoma delegation had a special train and, and journeyed to, uh, the, one of the triennials together. So, uh, I don't know that that Kansas and Oklahoma have that sort of close ties today, but uh, they certainly once did. So that's fantastic to hear. Um, so one thing I got written down here early on, we're talking about uh, the the uh, Indian Territory Grand Lodge and the uh, various tribes. We had Cherokee, Choctaw, uh, Creek, Muscogee. Um, you mentioned they had lodges, like a Cherokee lodge, a, a Choctaw lodge. W what did that look like in that time? Help uh, for our viewers and for me. W what's that look like? So those those particular lodges would have been, you know, located in in specific towns um, within those nations. The in the membership of the lodges were primarily indigenous. Um, okay. Only would have been a handful of white men in the territory at the time. Um, you know, at, at Cherokee Lodge, uh, you know, my ancestor, uh, the Reverend Bertolf, was a Methodist missionary. Joseph Murrow and the Choctaw Nation was Baptist missionary. So, uh, just a handful of white men at the time. But it's mostly it's mostly tribal headmen um, uh, forming these lodges. And when I say headmen, I mean um, you're talking about chiefs or uh, you know in the Muscogee Nation we had the, the House of Kings and the House of Warriors uh, which is sort of like the Senate and the legislature um, so it's uh, it's tribal leading tribal citizens um, that are joining these lodges and 
what really brought them to Freemasonry is, you know, a lot of these guys, they became Masons while visiting Washington, D.C. on tribal business. Um, but the lodge was a way that, you know, you're an Indian and, and it's a way that you can connect with the men who have power over your tribe's sovereignty and future. Um, so it was a way to connect with the leading white men of the time, I guess you could say, in order to uh, ensure their their tribe's survival. That's very cool. Very, very cool. So looking back, I was, I was trying to pull it up real quick and uh, see. I'm, I'm not able to pull it up in time here. But noticing the Grand Lodge seals of Kansas and Oklahoma, they're very similar in nature. We have, you know, the white man in the top hat essentially handing Freemasonry over to the native man. I don't know that I've seen that in any other Grand Lodge seals. Have you noticed that? I haven't. No, and I think that that's probably unique. Yeah, that's a cool connection because that that's one that you know really stands out to me in in Kansas history. And when I was pulling this up, I saw your guys's. I guess it hadn't caught my attention before, but it was very very similar to the Grand Seal of Kansas, just kind of flip flopped. But that's awesome. So, as a historian, as a history nerd, what has been your favorite bit of Oklahoma masonry? Uh, as far as the history goes, what gets so, you going? <laughs> um, something that I find really interesting, um, you know, as the curator of Masonic collections at the McAllister Scottish Rite, um, McAllister's a big Masonic town. Um, the Knights Templar had their own meeting hall. Um, you had the Lodge Hall, and then you had the Scottish Rite Hall. But in McAllister, uh, the cryptic masons, um, about 1915 through 1918, um, decided we're going to build our own Masonic temple. And they, they built this uh, interesting temple, I guess you could say, on a hill north of town. It had a uh, subterranean crypt. Um, with with all the necessary arches, it had a tunnel that connected the the temple with the dining hall, and it was it was built for the sole purpose of conferring the degrees of cryptic masonry. And that's probably the only temple in the United States that was ever built for the sole purpose of conferring the degrees of cryptic masonry. And they would they they conducted an annual pilgrimage. To this, to the temple is called Mount Moriah. So they okay. conducted an annual pilgrimage to Mount Moriah um, every year to confer the, the the council degrees, and it became a national affair for the brief period in which it was operated. Um, the general grand master visited one time, um, and and when I say brief period, I think the temple was, if I recall correctly, the temple was finished in 1919, and by the 1930s, it had already the, the flame had burnt out, I guess you could say. They had sure. these grand plans to build a park around it with a swimming pool, a dance pavilion, wow. croquet grounds. I mean, and I like croquet, so it would have been really, really right up my alley. But um, none of that ever materialized. And what was the downfall of the building was is that it was located outside of town. Um, Mm-hmm. And it wasn't visited regularly, so vandals were going out there and breaking into the place. That's too um, bad. The, the late 20s saw all Masonic activity in the city of McAllister move to the, to the Masonic, to the Scottish Rite Temple. 
Um, in fact, they 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 did a major expansion of the temple that was completed in 1930. And the whole purpose of that expansion was all Masonic activity in McAllister can be conducted in one place. And when that happened, um, no one was interested in going out to Mount Moriah anymore. Um, it fell into ruin. Um, the property was eventually sold. Uh, you can go. It's it's on private property today, but I've, I've been out there to see the ruins. And it's, you know. The, the forests of eastern Oklahoma are pretty dense. So you're, you're going through a pretty dense forest up a, up a mountainside, and all of a sudden there's these ruins of foundations and walls. Wow. And it's, like, it's like coming across a hidden temple in your Indiana Jones or something. So it's... Um, it's I got to uh, see that. Yeah, That's it's, the stuff it's I interesting out to on. see. Yeah. <laughs> so so we're, we're coming up on our nine o'clock toast, but we do have a quick question here from CWH on YouTube. It says, could there be a contemporary Grand Lodge of Indian Territory? If so, what do you think that would uh, entail? Could it be? So um, if you look at the, the proceedings of the Grand Lodge of the state of Oklahoma today, the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory and the Grand Lodge of Oklahoma Territory have never ceased to exist. Um, those, those, the, it's three Grand Lodges in all reality that still, that still operate, I guess you could say, or, or, or still, still exist. Uh, I've because heard the, that. Yeah, the proceedings every year say it's the, the you know, whatever it is, um, annual um, assembly of the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, of the Grand Lodge of Oklahoma Territory, and of the Grand really? Lodge of the State of Oklahoma. So they recognize all three of those those Grand Lodges and their annual conclaves. Um, That's cool. Annual, annual assemblies every every annual communications i could say i didn't realize they still listed them out i I kind of thought it was just an oversight that that's really cool that's really cool now now um you know the uh i i've i've heard it mentioned recently in light of the supreme court decision that that recognizes that our reservations still exist that Mm. uh you know oklahoma is not a viable state and cannot continue to function as the as uh, you know as as having these these multiple jurisdictions and my my response to that was well then maybe we do need to go back to having you know an the state of Oklahoma and the state of Sequoia as it was originally proposed maybe maybe the the Indian Territory should be its own its own state and then we could have our own Grand Lodge again so I would gladly go. move back to Tulsa I'd I'd leave Oklahoma City to go back to Tulsa so. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, we are uh, two minutes away from our 9 p.m. toast. Uh, Brother Akers, are you toasting with us this evening? If so, what do you got? Uh, I I poured a little glass of uh, the King's Ginger this evening. Um, the King's Ginger was, was formulated for King Edward VII to drink while driving his open-air motor car uh, in order to keep him warm. So... <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm working through the last little bit of the bottle of Pendleton here. So I think uh, probably before the next episode, we'll, we'll go out and pick out a new bottle and uh, I am toasting in our lodges custom uh, cannons from our 150 a few years ago. Very nice. And I saw you had quite the little uh, goblet there. What, what are you, uh, what's the glass you're toasting with? Oh, it's, uh, it's my wife's tiara wear, a little cordial right glass. So, yeah. I like it. It fits the King standard. I think. <laughs> well, we are coming on the nine o'clock hour. Uh, we started this on historical light 
right with the pandemic. Uh, we went on for about a month and a half straight, going nightly with these lives, went on to the first Fridays for a while. Uh, and it's been so popular. Everyone reaches out and, hey, I can't wait for first Friday. So when we transitioned this to doing full episodes again, we wanted to keep the toasts incorporated. Uh, everyone seemed to enjoy them. So we want to keep those there. Uh, Brother Akers, if you would do the honors, we'd love to have you present a toast for us this evening. Um, well, I would like to say, uh, you know, there's a, in indigenous cultures, we like to say we are still here. Um, and, you know, to, to the pioneering spirit of those original Indian territory masons that established the, the various lodges that came to comprise the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, we are still here. Um, you know, three, I believe three of four of the original lodges are still with us. So um, to those, those indigenous brethren of, of the Indian Territory. Those indigenous brethren of the Indian Territory. Cheers. Fantastic. Well, brother, I don't, I don't want to cut you off. It's been so fantastic having you here tonight. I've learned a ton from you, and I think we could nerd out for probably a good episode more. So I hope we can get you back on in the future. But if you don't mind, what, uh, what would be your closing thoughts for this evening uh, for everyone to know about Oklahoma masonry? What's your big takeaway for them? Uh, my big takeaway. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, no pressure. We, we, we like to, you know, we, we, we talk about what they call the Sooner Spirit, I guess you could say, in Oklahoma. And the Sooner Spirit is really sort of an outlaw spirit um, because, you know, the Sooners, they, they went into um, the unassigned lands before they were open trying to settle uh, against the wishes of the federal government. And they were, they were basically saying, you know, you can't stop us. We're going to do this anyway. And when you look at the, the way the Grand Lodge of the Indian Territory was formed without the consent of the Grand Lodge of Arkansas or anyone, I think, I think that Sooner Spirit of, of the, late, the late 19th century was still with us in the mid-19th. You know, I think it was born in the mid-19th century. It's this, it's this idea of you can't tell us what to do. We're going to do whatever we want. And I think that's, I think that's, what, uh, I think that's what Oklahomans have long done. So that's, that's, what, I, that's what I would say to, to take with you. So. That's fantastic, man. You, you've been awesome to chat with tonight. I uh, can't wait to chat with you some more and hopefully get you back on here again. Um, for everyone that wants to get a hold of you, learn a little bit more, and obviously get some of the works that you have put out in the past, uh, what, what's a good bit of contact information uh, maybe for the, uh, uh, the museum and stuff there as well? So um, on Facebook, um, Oklahoma Masonic History is, is the page I run. Um, and that pretty well links you to, to everything else, um, my blog and, and, and various lectures and things like that. So just Oklahoma Masonic History on Facebook. So, yeah. Fantastic. We will uh, make sure to get that shared into the Historical Light uh, group as well. And uh, we'll continue the conversation there. So, guys, make sure you go there as well. Uh, it's been great. Sorry about the, uh, the echoing issues in the beginning. Sounds like we got that resolved. But you guys are awesome for sticking through with us. And uh, until next time, we will see you back in two weeks. Take care. Check us out in the uh, Historical Light group and be well, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us.